I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Hello, everyone. Uh, I'm Badisha. I'm a journalist and broadcaster, and it gives me enormous pleasure to welcome you to this evening with the poet, novelist, and essayist Anne Michaels here at the beautiful, crime-ridden St. George's Church. Uh, thank you to the London Review of Books Bookshop, to the Flipside Festival, to Bloomsbury Books, and to Gareth Evans and Jess Chandler of House Sparrow Press. We will hear Anne's work and talk between ourselves until about 8pm, and then we'd love to hear questions and comments from you. Please keep to one or two short sentences, just so we can hear from as many people as possible. Without further ado... Anne Michaels is one of the literary world's leading writers. Born in Toronto, a city for whom she serves as Poet Laureate, she is that very lucky and rare author whose words have been translated into 45 languages, who's been the recipient of numerous honours, including the Orange Prize and the Guardian Fiction Award, and whose craft bridges poetry, fiction, and ruminative non-fiction, libretti and art essays, the profundity and trauma of the Second World War and the profundity and trauma of other more intimate losses. Her first three volumes of poetry, The Weight of Oranges, Miner's Pond and Skin Divers, published between 1986 and 1999, can now be savoured in a single volume published by Bloomsbury. Her novel, Fugitive Pieces, was published in 1997 to enormous success and was followed in 2009 by The Winter Vault. Both novels deal with loss of home, homeland, sense of self, identity and history, but also with their rediscovery, reconstruction and regeneration. Her work celebrates the power of language, but also the many ways in which language cannot always describe suffering. The writing is at once expansive and international, taking in Nazi-occupied Poland, the dismantling and rebuilding of Egyptian temples and Canadian seaways, and yet also fractional, intimate, mapping the many subtle permutations of parental and marital relationships, as well as the relationship between writer and reader, and between artist and inspiration. One beautifully versatile image which is a constant in all her writing is that of the sea and of water, which shifts from being a threat to civilization to a symbol of progress, an intimidating expanse and a nurturing space. As Gareth said, we're here to celebrate two new volumes, a collection of poetry called All We Saw and a work of non-fiction, Infinite Gradation. These two titles together express Anne Michael's ability to contain the vast and the particular, often in one piece of writing. Both these books are small in size, but great in outlook, exploring the possibilities of love, creation, remembrance, and memory. In her dedications and references to the artists Mark Strand, John Berger, Ava Hess, Nellie Sachs, and Claire Wilkes, among others, she asks how art, even that produced in suffering, confusion, and bereavement, has the ability to awaken others. As she writes in Infinite Gradation, Poetry must lead the reader not to the poet's life, but to the reader's own. And after that long preamble, I think we need to hear directly from the work, the unfiltered words of Anne Michaels. So we will commence with a reading. <laughs> My pleasure. Thank you. Um, 
Is it conceivable I could stand up? Or you can, but then you might have to. You won't be this. able to hear me. I don't. Okay, I'll sit down. Um, first of all, thank you so much for being here tonight and for wanting to listen, to think about poetry, um, to be able to talk and listen freely. Thank you. Um, I want to start with just a few other thank yous. Um, first of all, to the London Review Bookshop for hosting this event, and to Paul Gordon, and to the wonderful team at Bloomsbury, Alexander Pringle, Roz Ellis, and to Jess Chandler of House Sparrow Press, and Gareth Evans of House Sparrow Press. Uh, Gareth has... Um, Gareth is an incredible man uh, who has a genius for bringing people together and making events happen. And he published a few years ago um, a book that I wrote with John Berger. And he reminded me um, a few days ago that when we were, make, when we were making this book, he said, uh, he asked us, how, what should the size of the book be? How big should it be? Um, and like this one, I said, you know, we all agreed it should fit in a pocket. And, uh, and I said, it should be just the right size to fit over your heart. And John Berger said, it should be just the right size to stop a bullet. So um, then Gareth said, same thing. It's the same thing. So uh, I would like to... Uh, I'd like to start by reading uh, a few poems from All We Saw. I think that uh, every time we read a poem aloud, it is an act of hope. And in that spirit, I am going to read tonight. To write, because the dead can read. Because she thought everyone came home to find their family taken. Because the one closest to her cannot speak. Because he drew love into him from each body he entered. Because they are keeping her from him. Because the last time they met, he misunderstood her absolutely. Because a finger can hold a place in a book. Because a book rests in a lap. Because words are secrets passed one to another on a train. The same train where letters were crammed between slats to be found by strangers. Because they recognize each other over huge distances. Because a true word everywhere is Samizdat. Because everything political is personal and not the other way around. Because forgiveness is not about the past but the future and needs another word. Because the true witness of your soul is sometimes one you've scorned. Because it's possible to be married to someone who died many years before we were born. Because he painted the intimate objects of their life together, not from observation, but from memory. Though surrounded by the teacups, the flowers, the garden, he retreated to his small room to paint, each object transformed by love because words are mirrors that set fire to paper, because every day she risked her life for him, because he remembered this too late, because he was mistaken, because he was certain, because certainty and doubt consume each other like dogs in a parable, because of a Sunday morning in London, 
because of a cemetery in Wales, because of a mountain and a river, because he imagined himself an orphan, because an infant cannot carry herself, because of drawings on fax paper, because she sends her SMS with broken thumbs and an empty battery, because to be heard we do not need a pencil and we do not even need a tongue and we do not even need a body, because the one who holds the pen, even if it's too dark to see the page and even if his ink is his own blood, is free because an action can never be erased by a word, because we set down what we cannot bear to remember, because we cannot take back what we sang, because the dead can read. All we saw is dedicated to John Berger and Mark Strand. In the space of a very short time, I lost many close friends, intimates of over 30 years. What words can we have for the last weeks and hours before the imminent death of one we love? A time both urgent and utterly suspended? What words for the overpowering loss of a shared inner life, of ideas, intention, a shared language, let alone the loss of every other intimacy? What language for the unknowable, for mystery distinct from thought? It is a time of silence and muteness and desire so extreme it is rendered chaste. No words are restrained or spare enough, but all we saw tries to render language chaste. Ask aloud. To taste the salt of the stars in the sea. To love another more than oneself. To know this is to know everything. Do you see how the dusk and rain are one? Do our bodies come to nothing? Not how we fall in love, but how we fail in love. Ask aloud what comes of us. My love, do you understand me? Not surmise, sunrise. Ask aloud what comes of us. Not, not will, not desire, perhaps prayer, not still, held. At the end, you said, I want to keep my eyes open to miss nothing. Not entreaty, not regret, not future, not past. Touch and warm wait. Breath and again, what word can be heard? Not loss, not absence, perhaps soul. Not inside, not outside. Dusk's doorway. Not alone.
late August. Mountain, a wimple, starched, folds. Birds, the black page turning, the message folded and unfolded in that turning of the page inside out, in that scarf of shadow, in that message passing. You wanted death to give, not only take from us. And one last. Somewhere night is falling. Somewhere night is falling. Somewhere a man stands outside a church too bitter to enter, yet bound by doubt to that place. Somewhere a woman fills a glass with clear water and flowers drink their last moments in the last light of the fields. Somewhere a child stands next to a wall in the desert. Somewhere there is a house with a portrait of Beethoven and a child who wonders if it's a picture of her grandfather. Somewhere there is a boy learning to wait. Somewhere for the sake of his children, a man writes what he is seeing. Somewhere, for the sake of his children, a man will not write what he has seen. Somewhere, there is a son with the memory of a father's touch on his back, giving him courage. Somewhere, a mother gives courage to thousands of mourners at her son's funeral. Somewhere, a man measures the dimensions of the prison precisely. Somewhere a woman plants a garden in front of the prison. Somewhere thousands stand where once the square was empty. Somewhere a cave is lit by a torch. Somewhere there is a man who walks beside us without a hat in the rain. Somewhere a man reads a letter and folds it carefully into his heart. Somewhere a man weeps for what he has found. Somewhere between Paris and London, a man peels an orange on the train. Somewhere a man waits in a train station with the taste of coffee on his palate. Somewhere a man waits in a city for a woman who waits for him. Somewhere a man holds out his hand before we know we need it. Somewhere there is a room lit only by a painting as night falls. Somewhere there is a man who is not afraid to live in a woman's hope. Somewhere there is a man who has not forgotten anything and has written it down. Somewhere there is someone so close to you, there are no details. Somewhere a woman's gift has not been deepened, but corrupted by loss. Somewhere there is a man who has given away everything and stands in the rain, grateful. Somewhere the dead are leaving a sign. Somewhere there is a man who meets his late mother in Lisbon. Somewhere a man makes soup for the village. Somewhere a man tells a woman she is not as alone as she thinks, and she understands she is precisely as alone. Somewhere a man remembers a blue shirt left behind 40 years before. Somewhere a man inscribes the back of a photograph and dates it 20 years before either of them were born. Somewhere there is a painter carrying a spare egg. Somewhere there is a man driving away from the marketplace with cages of unsold chicks in the back seat of his Peugeot. Somewhere a woman stops for petrol Thousands of white origami birds pressed against the car windows. Somewhere on the shoulder of the highway, not long before he dies, a man opens the hatch of his truck and shows a woman his paintings, all imaginings of her body, how her skin feels against his mind. Somewhere a woman wakes in the night and knows no one will write a poem for her. Somewhere a man answers courage with courage.
Somewhere a man fights for nothing. Somewhere a man digs his own grave in the forest and waits. Somewhere a man builds the room where his child will be conceived. Somewhere a man and a woman leave a note in the rafters. Somewhere a man wonders how many thousands of years men have lain with a woman just this way. Somewhere a woman slips off her scarf without untying the knot at her nape. Somewhere a man writes of that scarf and the fist of the knot against his back. Somewhere rain is falling. Somewhere a man is repairing the night, one word at a time. Somewhere a man sends a message spoken before hands ever wrote. Somewhere night is falling. so much for those words and did you notice that strange absorbent silence that happened in between them we have a beautiful quality of listening in the in the audience tonight i have about half an hour and just about 54 questions to ask you so we'll go right into it you preface that reading by saying that every time we read aloud it's an act of hope but in fact in your work literature has power for good and for ill in sea of lanterns you mentioned the tormenting literature that names forever haunting and naming, and also the idea of words that taste of an answer. Do you think that literature has just as much power to damage and derail and obscure than also to provide hope and to shine a light on events? I think that we make novels, we make poems, um with a varying degree of consciousness and responsibility, like all things, like everything else we make. But the real literature, the literature that finds its life in a reader, that literature is always about hope. I think it's... I think, in a way, we are um, conspirators, both writer and reader, against everything that has the power to defeat us. So, I would say that, in the end, literature will always... um, bring us to that place that leads us somewhere else. Um, That it's always uh, a passage to to somewhere else. Could we talk also a little bit about form? Because it's so clear when you read it out that these are clear imprinted sentences and yet at the same time they are not abstract. So you're referencing snapshots, moments in time. But you almost... I don't want to say satirize, but you have a certain skepticism about traditional forms in the sense of you mentioning the morbid, mortal beauty of this sonnet or that. And it uh, makes me think of how poetry at the moment is having a great renaissance. But a lot of what the emergent poets are saying is, well, I remember being put off poetry during my formative years because we had to go for the morbid, mortal beauty of the sonnet and count our lines and work it all out. And yet you and other poets are showing that Poetry takes whatever form it it will take. You don't have to have it within a template. I think that poetry is is necessary. It's like um, a shopping list of milk, bread, tea, poems. I mean, I I think we need it. I think it answers something in us that nothing else answers. It's, um, it's unlike fiction in the sense that in the sense of time, uh, among other things, um, 
with fiction, uh, I know that I, I can, hopefully I'm holding the reader close to me for, for hundreds of pages so you can uh, enter into dark territory um, to that place that I always think of as before we turn away. Um, but you're holding the reader close and so that time together allows uh, a, a certain kind of courage and a certain kind of descent into something. But poetry, poetry is different. You're, you're, you're with the reader for a short period of time. So, so what you're hoping, I think, is that the poem lives on and unfolds in the reader. Um, and so form uh, form is always the question so how do you how do you um, make that thing that can be carried by the one who reads it and in this book um, as I was saying at the beginning the challenge of simplicity uh, of writing about things that are really ineffable, inexpressible, um, trying to understand maybe something that the body proves and yet is unprovable. Um, how do we find a language for that? And, and I know that it, it felt almost like insanity, like reckless insanity to place, um, you know, a, four or five words on one page. Can, can one have that kind of faith in language that, that four or five words uh, could, could sit on a page uh, and balance, in a sense, the entire rest of the poem? Can one dare to have that faith in language? Can language be cleansed enough for us to, to be able to read those words cleanly? Uh, so again and again, I I, I felt it, it must be written this way. It has to be written this way. They, the words need to have that space around them. But but it was a true act of faith to do that. Could you say something also about your extraordinary relationship with the landscape? Because reading through all of your poetry, and in fact it's the same with your, your prose fiction, you have a, an amazing uh, two-way flow between the narrating voice and the landscape. It seems to me that you really resist monumentality so that you have an ability to make uh, intimate moments between individuals seem monumental and yet when you talk about nature, mountains, the great sort of panoramic view, you describe them in a way that is almost um, which is intimate which is tactile, so in the poems you have the folding dusk uh, the salt and scratch of stars you describe the sea and the sky both as a grey uneven ground these are sort of these feel like things which are within reach. It's the opposite of, uh, you know, I'm writing Canadian monumental landscape literature here. It's, uh, these are touchable moments. I think everything uh, comes down to the body. Um, you know, the, the finger that holds a place in the book, the, the book that rests in a lap. Uh, there's something so intimate about setting words on paper, knowing that they will be held, that a hand will touch that book, um, that um, a consciousness will take in those words, um, hopefully. And so our place in time, our place in, in geography, our place in geology, uh, our place in theology is all bodily based and nothing names that more precisely than death uh, truly it's it's uh, it's not uh, it's not the mystical uh, and the mystical which is which is tied to as you say monumentality 
It's simply mystery. And mystery is small, mystery is intimate, mystery is in the body. I'm really surprised that you say that everything comes down to the body because I thought that you were going to say everything comes down to writing because what I noticed reading through your work is that you use so many sort of metaphors and similes which are for writing. So you describe the line of the sea being like the torn edge of a page being like the line of a poem or a bird being like a black page giving you a message. And I'm thinking, hang on, she's in her study, she's looking at a bird or the sea, and yet actually it's somehow circling back down subconsciously to... There's, a, there's literature here that's trying to come back around again. Well, it's very much the case in this book because it is for two incredible writers. Um, and both John Berger and Mark Strand, in their very different ways... Um, lived lives that uh, were very much about the word and very much about the word on the page, uh, which is a, a very, uh, such a particular devotion. Um, the whole idea of putting experience um, on the page in such a way that... that um, that we don't hold on to it, but hold it. And so again and again, this book tries to understand uh, what, what that means. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We are living in an age where communication and reaction is expected to be instantaneous that something happens and there's a news report or even a confessional piece is supposed to be written as if you know you, you cut a vein and you sort of write your 3,000 words confessional article but uh, I want to know if this transformation of experience takes time because uh, in infinite gradation you write to take a decade to think to be silenced to come back around to it uh, to witness is not inordinate so are you operating at a, a different sort of time scale whereby you are somehow managing to write at speed but think at leisure? I think that um, we're very much become a culture of opinion rather than thought. And um, I'm on the side of thought. Uh, I think uh, it's a respect for the reader to have thought before one publishes. Uh, I think it is a respect for the reader's time, for a reader's engagement of heart and mind to have tested uh, one's belief to the limit uh, before one uh, puts, puts that uh, forward into the world. I think fiction is the place to do that. I think a poem is the place to do that. Um, I think it's not a, um, a false or misguided expectation to expect thought to be in a book. So much of your writing and throughout your body of work has dealt not just with personal trauma and personal ructions, but also huge damaging ructions in human history which have had uh, genocidal implications of many, many millions of deaths. And yet you write in um, Infinite Gradation that taking on board these topics is not a, for, for a writer is not a question of style or technique. You call it a moral question. What do you mean by that? 
Well, it's moral in, so, in several meanings. Um, one, in one way, very simply, uh, because I have written about history, historical events, experiences that have been lived, and, uh, and have tried to come to some truth uh, through fiction. Um, I think that there's a moral responsibility to those people, to those experiences, to, to those lives lived and those lives lost. Uh, I don't think one could, you know, in, in any moral sense, write lightly about that experience or those experiences. Um, and I think also, and I've said this many times, that that morality is a muscle. It's something that has to be exercised. We have to use it uh, in order to be ready when when we're called upon. Uh, I don't think uh, you know we're not going to suddenly know how to do the right thing. I think we have to practice doing the right thing. And literature is really a fantastic place to practice that, to exercise that muscle. Uh. I'm wary that we're making your work sound incredibly heavy, and in fact, it's serious but not heavy. That's, there are oh, two different you. things. Thank That's you. something I, I also noticed, particularly in, in the most recent collection, is that humor and lightness actually run all the way through the poems because you're not just talking about grief and bereavement and loss, you are celebrating how precious these love relationships of various kinds are. And I, I realized that you have this great way of putting opposites together as a way of uh, showing how chance and contingency operate so that uh, the beautiful image of a couple lying together in a lit room in a dark lagoon, well, that's one possibility that happens to manifest alongside many, many other millions of possibilities. So you say, um, you put next to each other the phrases, I cannot live without you, this too shall pass. And I wondered if you could say something a little bit about the chance and the contingency and perhaps those things making the relationships so very precious and so brightly lit in the darkness. Well, I mean, we all know that um, oh, there's so much of life is uh, chance, is... Um, is uh, I have a description in Infinite Degradation uh, about uh, how, how we hold a bird when it graces our hand. So um, that holding is actually that grace, the grace. Uh, so um, there, there has to be some lightness uh, in the fact that um, you know we we can be receptive and receive experience and be ready to embrace things that come, but but there is a randomness that is uh, idiosyncratic, that is quirky, that is that is um, an unfolding that we can't even guess the source of. Um, and there, that lightness is, is, is a liberation, it's a release, it's a, um, it's a thing we never could have imagined. Uh, I read a quote by the sculptor Mark Quinn who said that a relationship is like holding, holding an egg in the palm of your hand. Anything can happen at any moment, which is quite, quite beautiful and sort of fits with the, the poetry in, in your collection. Um, out of all of that, does romantic love emerge as the most trivial of all the kinds of love there are? You, you send it up in your poem, I think it's, uh, it's Five Islands, which uh, considers, considers an archetypal romantic moment, so uh, love at first sight, or the fainted end of a romance, and yet taking the collection as a whole, you realize there are many other much more profound forms of love, you know, daughterly, parental love, friendship love, for example. Yes, uh, I hope that this book um, takes us uh, to many different ways, uh, the many different ways we love each other. Um, and then there's, there are ways that, um, that I think we don't even understand. Uh, 
And for example, I mean, after someone dies, uh, we learn ways that we love that person that we, we really, we didn't know. So love, um, we live uh, where love finds us. You know, we, we um, belong where love finds us. Uh, and, and love does not end uh, when someone dies. Um, we keep what belongs to us one of the poems says. And um, uh, I love that quote by Colette who said, you know, just because someone's died, it doesn't mean I have to stop writing them letters, you know? So uh, I think love continues and how we love uh, continues to change uh, even after that person's gone. We've spoken a lot about what language can do, but there's also a great tribute to silence throughout your work. You seem to imply that there are um, there are certain states of being or states of feeling that language can't encompass and perhaps shouldn't. So you talk about the gap between two different states, uh, the dash at the end of a phrase, the silence where love emerges, the difference between silence and speechlessness, the difference between speechlessness and solace. Are there grades of silence which are still full of feeling? Well, I think, yes, absolutely. Silence um, can separate us. It can, that it can be solitude, um, but it also can be incredible communion. And uh, so... This, this book also dares to try and say something about the moment of death um, and, and that silence. Uh, there's, um, there's so many ways in which uh, the, the poems try to uh, distinguish between uh, silence and speechlessness, muteness. Um, and music, uh, music has a form for silence, but, but poetry doesn't, so we have to make a form for it, whether it's um, through the, uh, the blank space on a page, um, through uh, spacing between words, between what happens uh, between one line and another. Um, and that's hard to do, to, to put silence uh, on the page. Uh, fiction can do it through, um, through pacing, through dialogue, but poetry has to do it through image, I think, through, through metaphor and through the actual physical um, way a poem is, appears on, on the page. Uh, just to bring it out and uh, mention something that you did earlier this year in April during uh, National Poetry Month, you performed the poem on writing that I had hoped you would read and, and indeed you did at Toronto City Council and in an interview around the time you wanted to, you said you wanted to celebrate Toronto's language diversity and literary diversity uh, now more than ever. And I wondered if you could say a little bit about that. Why is that so important right now? And obviously my subtext question is, do you ever look across the border at America and think, oh my God, what's happening? <laughs> we look away from the border, <laughs> is what we do. Um, yes, that's a, that's a very good question. The language diversity question uh, in, in Toronto... Um, the statistics of language diversity are incredible. Uh, we speak over 200 languages. Um, we over, well over half of the city uh, speaks uh, a third language. Um, some incredible statistic, like, uh, you know, I don't know, 85, 90% of the population has only lived in the city for 15 years. I mean, it's staggering. Um, and so, um, as the poet laureate, I 
been thinking a great deal about what that means. And language, uh, when we think of language diversity, uh, we, we rarely talk about the fact that each one of those languages carries a literature, it's a rich literature. Um, so uh, some of the work I've been doing has been to um, work with communities to um, publish uh, in both English and their, their own language and, and to, to bring that literature and literature being written by the younger generation uh, into the broader cultural conversation. And what's been very interesting is that um, language can divide uh, even a single family because when a family comes, maybe the older children speak the home language, the mother's language, but the younger children don't. So uh, younger siblings don't can't speak the language that the older children can speak, that the parents speak. And I've been finding that um, doing this work, that, that the younger generation that's been writing in English has now started to want to translate the English writing that they've been doing back into the mother tongue, to turn it around. It's been really beautiful. Um, and I was saying the other night that I... I find it very moving to think of all those households where parents are singing to their children, you know, lullabies at night, and, and they're singing in a language that their children don't understand. So there's tremendous uh, work there to be done to, to bridge that and to make those languages and the, the, the writing of those languages, that literature, uh, part of... Um, home. Uh, to open that out even further, we have about five or six minutes before another brief reading from you. Uh, throughout the writing, you have all these different cultural touchstones, often artists working either in a different discipline or across many different disciplines. So John Berger and Mark Strand are one, but Ava Hess and Claire Wilkes, who's an artist who's inspired by another woman's diaries. Uh, I wondered how that inspires you and how that opens up your, your thinking and your your writing. There's a sort of chain of references and a conversation between artists happening. Well, it's very beautiful to to be writing, to have written about about painting and painters and how we um, have conversations with people we've never met, uh, whose work we know, how we converse with uh, with work, and. Um, to understand uh, how that conversation um, can be can be broadened out uh, to make connections that 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 hopefully will reach a reader in a certain way, and they the reader in turn will make their connections, and uh, so that that work that painting um, suddenly has a has a place in a in a web of of many other associations. Uh, and so everything becomes more far-reaching, and not only that, but, but hopefully deeper, layer and layer and layer. It, 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 I think it, it's a dispelling of loneliness, you know? You're so expansive when you talk about your work, but in actual fact, you are very private, and you've managed to uh, maintain that privacy despite enormous professional Success. I wonder if that's uh, conscious or it's also part of your philosophy as an artist because in Infinite Gradation you describe biography as being like an iceberg, that the real story of a life is really submerged. It's not out there for everyone to see. I wondered if you could say a little bit about that. Um, well, the sense that um, I want people to be led not to my life but to their own life, I mean, that's really... a a very potent belief of mine. Um, I want the reader to to look up from the page and and look at the people they love. I mean, I I want that to be the the process. Um, and I do also think, you know, I would have to sit down with someone for 
hours to to really uh, communicate something of who I am, something of uh, to to find out something of who they are, and um, so in a way, the books are profoundly intimate, and uh, any writing is profoundly intimate. So um, in a way, uh, I've been completely uh, I've been completely open. <laughs> I think we have just enough time for another reading from you if you'd like okay. to give us one. And I think then we'll have the chance to open up to questions from the floor. So please first listen and then gather your thoughts and we'll come round to you. Um, I very much want to read this poem um, to all of you here tonight. May love seize you. May love seize you. May the mountain pass always be open. May you find dear John drawing in the kitchen at breakfast. May you continue to carry cases of champagne in the night streets. May you always know the company of animals and sing to the cows and the crows. May you always read in bed with the ones you love most. May the flash of lightning illuminate a wild joy in your face, even in the shipwreck. May you elude the hook of despair like a fish free in a stream. May nakedness be your best disguise. May the family of friends continue to save each other in the avalanche and in the drought. May you always know ferocity, generosity. May you continue to shout defiance. May you stay awake until the beginning of the story. May you continue never to waste a moment or a breath. May time never have its way with you. May first light bring an answer. May love seize you. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events.